This is super emotional and I hope you're okay, but also I don't care if you're okay. It's about me. And I'm Ronnie Sullivan. And welcome to Sisteria, a podcast about women and non-binary creatives and their experiences creating and consuming arts and culture. In this week's episode, we chat to the musician and friend of Sisteria, Evelyn Ida Morris. Ev is a gifted musician celebrated for their dexterity across multiple instruments and for songwriting that is complex and structurally adventurous. They've released four albums as the Experimental Pop Act Pikelet, for which they were shortlisted for the Australian Music Prize. In 2014, they co-founded Listen, an advocacy group focused on creating discourse around gender diversity and politics in Australian music. In 2018, they released their first self-titled album under Evelyn Ida Morris. The album focuses wholly on piano in lush post-classical compositions, which deal thematically with the experience of being non-binary and making sense of that experience. In this week's episode, we discuss being a child prodigy, the burnout that comes with working in activist spaces, being a feminist, and pashing Jimmy Barnes at the Arias. Passion's probably a bit strong. I think it's a little bit of a kiss. We started this episode by asking Ev about their farewell ceremony for their music under the name Pikelet. I met you when you were Pikelet, essentially. Mm. Do you still? Are you still going to be Pikelet? Because your no, actually, I'm album kind of ditching the moniker. Although I do have a friend called Monica, I'm keeping her. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm doing like a what funny. About Phoebe and Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> You couldn't hold that one. Did back. you see it? Like I took I know, a breath I before like, I said it, and I was like, "Cut off it." Um, no, I, I am doing like a funny funeral service or like a memorial service for Pikelet, like a uh, kind of almost like a name, you know, dead name ceremony because Pikelet's definitely sort of from a time when I was trying desperately to identify as cis, and I don't really feel comfy in it anymore. So, um. I thought it would be funny to just get a friend who does this amazing floristry, Cecilia Fox. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, like, um, they're going to put big bouquets around and then we're going to have a, like, I'm going to play some piano. It's going to be very somber. <laughs> Do you think, like, would that be emotional? Cheek. I think it will be for me a little bit, yeah. Mm. But also, like, I, I've been through so many ups and downs with Pikelet and so many weird times where I've been, like, failing at navigating the patriarchy and it's, like, it's so loaded mm. now that I'm kind of, like, bye-bye. <laughs> I am finished. I think there's something really beautiful about doing that on your own terms and creating a, a ceremony around that process. I saw a woman speak last year who does living wakes, which is, like, a similar uh, kind of thing yeah. where people can, while they're alive, can, like, yeah. bring people together and be, like, I don't want to miss this thing that's, you know. Yeah, yeah. The people always say the nice things about you are that the moment to reflect happens yeah. when you're not around to be there. But being yeah, in control of, of that. Yeah, and all of us that are godless, are, um, we're stripped of any rituals in our lives. Mm. And I think that music for me is such a spiritual thing. <laughs> like, you don't have to say it like that. Like, but, you know, like I've always, it's, 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 it's such a huge part of my identity. So, mm-hmm. like, it's weird to make a big change and say goodbye to something without recognizing it and acknowledging that part of my life and I think I just love rituals Mm. I think it's really nice to do is it just the name that you're going to lay to rest or is there like any stylistic stuff that you're putting aside no there's stylistic stuff as well I I don't want to spend so much time carrying loads of gear that is like really friggin complicated because what can you explain a little bit about 
what Pikelet was. Yeah, Pikelet started off being just a loop pedal and then lots of acoustic instruments and my voice and stuff that I looped through the pedal. But then, you know, as I said, I was sort of navigating the patriarchy and listening to all these men tell me things about things and life and how to do music. And I was like, well, now I have to have a proper band or I have to have like proper electronics and a sequencer instead of a loop pedal. And like loop pedals kind of went out of style. And I just was like, well, I don't want people to see that instead of my music. So then I just got very lost, like trying to find the right medium for it, the right place for it. And really what I was doing is trying to convince the world that I was legitimate and like, you know, adding gear and gear and gear and gear. Was it also a little bit of like self-discovery as well? Maybe you were trying to convince yourself that you were legitimate yeah. too? Yeah. And now I'm doing production in studio. I don't need to prove to anyone that I know how to plug things in on stage. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. I'm- also, we've just seen you plug shit in. So we, yeah. we can vouch for the fact that Ev can do that. Yeah. This is, you are hearing the plugs that I plugged <laughs> in right now. And it's like, I, I do love production, but now I'm doing it in a more controlled environment where I can get really deep and nerdy into it so it doesn't seem logical to keep doing it on stage where it's like very stressful problem solving what cable is not working out of 50 is like a nightmare when there's a room full of people staring at you it's hard enough when there's just four people in the studio it's like (laughs) is this (laughs) is this like the biggest do you think musical evolution that you've had in your career or even your life related to music or can you see that there have been other moments in your life where you've kind of cycled through things and worked through yeah. things via music? I think I've always been it's I'm trying really hard not to make an Ev pun right now mm-hmm. but I've always been evolving. <laughs> I didn't even mean that too. But evolving. The, this feels a little bit more like a de-evolution, de-evolution or whatever because I started out playing piano and it is the most immediate instrument for me so like coming back to piano and just being comfortable on it is is like very resonant for how I'm feeling in my life as well and it's interesting when you talk about the do it like performing live as Pikelet and how that felt have you done many live performances as Evelyn Ida Morris yeah what does that feel like comparatively yeah I mean I was doing them even like four years ago when I wrote some of this material but back then I was like oh people won't like this it's too arty or it's too classical sounding there's nothing like young and modern about it so I felt like I was a 55 year old or something <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that also but you are not. 75 right now I'm right. 70 105 yeah <laughs> I just didn't feel confident you know and it takes a lot of takes a lot more confidence for me I don't know everyone's different with how they engage with their performance stuff but like it takes a lot more confidence for me to just sit down with one instrument and one voice and do a thing than it is to like be like here's a drum machine doing a thing and here's another thing doing a thing and here's a keyboard that sounds really cool and pure and filters and you know like then I feel like I'm distracting people from you know whatever raw emotional content is inside of the music whereas now I'm just kind of like deal with it <laughs> to yourself or to audiences <laughs> to everyone I'm like this is super emotional and I hope you're okay but also I don't care if you're okay <laughs> it's about me yeah. so yeah. you said you started with piano and now you're back to it when did you start I was like three and a half years old no that's fucked that's fucked <laughs> <laughs> but you sounded terrible right tell us that <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it was a floor keyboard like I got for my nephew yeah I mean no uh, I, I was I was pretty good at it and uh prodigy. I like you're a prodigy not really no 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 because like I my mum's grandma So my great-grandmother had a beautiful big old piano that we still have, but it's like totally falling apart. And that was just around. So I was like experimenting on it 
from really young and then kind of hassled my parents into letting me get lessons. And then they were like, didn't want to pay for expensive lessons or couldn't pay for expensive lessons or whatever. So like we went to these group lessons that were really hippy dippy out in Eltham, you know, you know, they don't teach you how to read music. You just sort of have to learn from everyone else. But I very quickly like developed a good ear and because your brain's so malleable and I was so keen. I was just like, I'm here, I'm doing this. I don't know what these dots are on this piece of paper, but I am like (laughs) so playing the piano right now. That sounds like kind of an amazing way to learn free of those constraints. Yeah. And the, you know, the formal element, you can always learn that later, but to kind of come to it with this joy and this communal Mm. approach is beautiful, especially for kids. Yeah. It was really cool. And there was lots of different levels of ability in every group. So it wasn't like I never at any point felt like I had to prove anything to those people Mm -hmm. in in the piano lessons. It was always like, oh, this is just what I feel like playing and I think I'm doing an okay job. And then I I sort of skipped the point at which you were supposed to learn how to read the notation because I ended up putting chords to songs and stuff and they were like, oh, maybe you should go to a a more advanced class and then yeah and then I missed the bit where you're supposed to learn to read so but I did I did try like classical piano lessons when I was about 12 and um I just pretended that I was reading the music I also like that you're saying that like you've had this extensive career before you were 12 you're like when I was 12 I thought you were gonna say like 25 no, you yeah. turn to it but like no, I was like uh I, I noticed that at school like people were doing AMEB classes and stuff and I had started to get a little bit competitive by that stage you know getting picked on at school so I was like I want to prove that I'm amazing I need a star I need a mark and then yeah the piano lessons were hilarious the teacher would like show me the sheet music and I'd be like oh yeah yeah cool 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 yeah <laughs> can you just like play it to me like one time real quick and then I would just pick it up by ear and, and um, pretend to be reading the music yeah yeah but she she totally knew what was going on after a little while she wasn't it was probably pretty obvious <laughs> 12 year olds that think they're tricking adults are like no you're not really tricking anyone but yeah I sort of Missed on I missed out on a lot of opportunities to read and I'm I'm schooling myself with that nowadays and like once I started teaching I was like I have to learn to read. <laughs> if you're teaching other people how. Yeah. But like when know. you're teaching little kids it's kind of amazing because you're like it's so simple to pick up. So you'd learn it just before the lesson. You just be like, Oh yeah, that's where a C is. Okay, cool. Hey kid, this is where a C is. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still teaching now? Because I know no, you were no, for I a little hate, bit. I'm really bad at it. And you were teaching drums as well, weren't you? Yeah. Drums I quite like teaching. Because when did you pick up drums? I was like 13. Okay, so, so once a I, year after you faked your way yeah, yeah. <laughs> through those classical music. Yeah, like I sort of realised I realized with piano that I wasn't ever going to be virtuosic or whatever. I didn't really see myself going down that classical music path. And I had these funny, weird uncomfortable experiences at a Steadford's where I was like a subpar you know and I was like at high school getting picked on in different ways so I was like I need a cooler instrument so then I took up drums and I also feel like it was you know a gender thing I was like all the dudes were playing drums I didn't feel like I fit in with the girls so I was like maybe I'll try and beat the guys at this because I have two brothers so I'm comfortable with beating guys (laughs) (laughs) although my I never ever ever have beaten my brothers at computer games I think I've always been a little uncomfortable around kids because then more recently what I've been discovering more about my gender I'm like oh I'm really uncomfortable with having a uterus so like I'm not really comfortable with the idea of childbearing and I never have been fine with other people doing it obviously but for me it makes me feel really awful to think about Mm. and it's hard to understand what that means when you're younger and you don't have the language for what non-binary is you're just like why do I feel so weird around babies and when women are talking about periods and stuff you're just kind of like 
I don't know why I feel weird, but I feel really weird. And so, yeah, I think eventually I just started to tell myself like, oh, you're just not good with kids and you're just not good at being like a woman or a female. So, yeah. I feel like also when people are gendering a person as female, as a young woman from such a young age, there's the implicit question of like, Whether you're going to have babies to. one yeah. day, aren't you? And there's that expectation of like, are you good at it? Like pe- other people putting that on you, mm. even beyond just you doing that yourself. Steph, I would love to know if you ever learnt an instrument as a young child. Were you a musical person? No. I I really, really wanted to. Like, desperately wanted to. I asked my parents all the time. But we were, like, quite poor. But also their priorities as to what... I don't even think it was what kids should learn or what people should do. It's probably more like it was yeah. very sports-minded, right? So, uh, like, as soon as my brother wanted to play footy or basketball, that was something they could get behind and find the money for. But guitar lessons or mm-hmm. piano lessons or something mm. or the books I wanted to buy, like, they would rarely take me to the library. That was, like, my treat. And that's, like, continued, the academic pursuits. I'm the only one to have, well, like, have finished high school in my immediate family and the only one to have gone on to university in my extended family. And my mum's one of seven, so there are many of them. So it was never something that has happened. But I've always wanted to. And actually, my partner bought me a keyboard for Christmas a few yeah. years ago. So I can, like, slowly take it at my own pace. And, like, I'm yeah. not very good. But well, um, I just it- took up painting. And yeah, like, I did want to ask you about yeah, that. Like, and I think that everybody knows how to like listen to their own impulses to a certain degree. And if you don't, then it's good practice to try some sort of creative pursuit. Yeah. And I think with, with painting, I've been approaching it just by being like, do I like this? Mm. And then I'm like, no, or yes, you know. And you slowly develop what bits of the practice you enjoy. Yeah, is it fun? Like, am yeah, I getting... Exactly. And for me, I think... Like, I'm just putting YouTube clips up of, like, songs that I like with those yeah. little things that fall down because I don't want to, uh, like, yeah. read the yeah. music or go really hard into it because I want it to be something that uses and activates a part of my brain that I don't use yeah. very often, which is something I don't know, but not putting pressure on myself. Mm. And it's fun. Like, I've noticed when I've sat down, like, for 15 minutes or so a day for, like, a week, by the end of the week, I'll be so much better just like a few bars or whatever but I'm yeah, just like yeah. and I get proud of myself and then maybe I put it away for two months yeah. or whatever but it's so I've been the keyboard's gonna go anywhere exactly I got there yeah but like also I I think yeah there's there's so many different purposes for music and like although I release music and I've always been real obsessive about it like the other purpose that it gets used for and it has been used for throughout history is just like having fun and like I still do that as well and and I there's heaps of different stuff that I've recorded and written that I would never show anyone and those ones are the ones that are just for me well it's the difference like what you were saying before when you were 12 and realized that you were not going to be a virtuoso yeah removing that pressure of Mm. I'm only it's only worth doing if I can be like the best in the world and being like no I just need to be the best at what I whatever I decide I want to do however I want to approach it like that's yeah the main thing and Everyone likes to listen to music. It's just that next level of, well, you can kind of get in there and dig around in it and play with it yourself. Do you mm. play anything? No, no. Having said that, I like the idea. <laughs> like, I'm like, I can I can say how much I love it as a pursuit. But no, I played around the keyboard when I was a kid. Like, oh, yeah, sorry, I did play recorder. <laughs> like yeah. every other kid. Yeah, and I played the ukulele, which was also, that was everyone in our primary school played the ukulele. It was great. But when I started high school, everyone had to learn an instrument in year seven. And I, I like chose it before I started school and I chose the trombone because I thought it was just a wacky, cool instrument. Mm. And then I got, you know, started school on the first week of term, went to the music class and there were like 
three of us in the trombone class. I was like quite little, so it's a very big instrument. It was a bit mm-hmm. hard to grasp, but then it also became really apparent that like trombone was not a cool instrument. Right. And, like, everyone was like laughing at us, and it had like the spit valve, which you like release because all the spit collects at the bottom of the horn, and mm-hmm. like it was because I was in year seven and I was so anxious about being in a new high school environment, yeah, yeah. it became this, this great burden that I didn't want people to know that I played the trombone and I hated carrying it to school on days of, that we had to practice and all this stuff. And I kind of lament that I let myself be swayed by that. But of course I did because I was yeah. 13. You know better, right? Yeah. So, so did I. Like, so did everyone. I feel like there's no way that you can – you can't really do anything about how impressionable you, you are at that age. But especially when you're raised to think that you're not good enough and, you know, like you're always thinking, you're looking to everybody else for a cue as to whether you're a decent person or a good person if you're raised AFAB or, you know, if you're raised female. You know, if you don't fit into the standard structures of like what your gender role is supposed to be, you just end up being like, wait, so what am I supposed to do? Or you rebel against it, like playing drums. And the irony is that most people are so busy worrying about themselves that they're not even cognizant that you have these concerns or these anxieties and no one's giving you the signals yeah like thumbs up you've done exactly what you're supposed to do today so you just get kind of more tangled up if anything and you you went on to play drums in bands around melbourne right yeah i started going to missing link records in the city and just like looking at those lists of people need a drummer or whatever and i started auditioning for ska bands when i was 16 and then I didn't get into any of them because they were all like, why, you're way too young. You can't even come to the venue. (laughs) Um, And then I was like, well, can you just sneak me into the gigs at least so I can go and see all the bands and like get a sense of what's happening. So I've always been really geared towards the community that happens around music as well, even when I was really small. Were people receptive to letting you kind of engage with that world as a young kid? Yeah, really, a lot. There were these guys that were like in these cool ska bands at the time. I know it sounds strange. (laughs) And like, you know, just tagging along with them and seeing all these punk bands and ska bands and stuff. And that's where I kind of got introduced to like music culture and like the fact that I don't need to fit in with the people at my high school because there's actually this whole other world of people who are very niche doing, you know. And I mean, there's a lot of privilege in being able to do all of this, obviously. But for me, it was kind of mind blowing. I was like, wow, and I can dress however I want to at these. I mean, that's what I thought. I was like, these people are dressing wacky. So I thought I could dress however I want. But then I soon realized that there's like a code for every scene and you're supposed to dress a particular way in every gig you go to, especially in the punk scene. Like, it takes a lot of work to look like you've done no work Yeah, at all. yeah. No one's like, I just woke up like this when they have a mohawk. Although, if you use a specific kind of glue, um, <laughs> it's, it's quite possible. Or you get a special pillow with, like, a hole down the middle. Yeah. <laughs> that's genius. Like a butt pillow. No, I feel like we don't have to spend so much time in my teen years. Actually, I spent New Year's Eve this year with a friend who I hadn't seen from high school for a long time because I reconnected with her because I went to Canberra to play a gig and she was like, hey, you're coming to Canberra, oh my God. And I was like, oh no, someone from high school. And then, (laughs) that was a delay, by the way. (laughs) And then we just like reconnected and we were like, oh, we're both like weird and queer and arty and then she was in town for New Year's. So I got to like revisit my entire high school times and just be like, holy crap, like this person who was there thinks that I'm fine how I am. So maybe that might be the case with a lot of people from that time. And I can let go of that narrative a little bit. That's really heartening and yeah. inspiring. Maybe yeah. we all have those encounters. Yeah. I mean, definitely could go either way. 
You could definitely reconnect with someone from high school and be like, wow, you're still a bigot. <laughs> That's great. Do it. Keep doing it until you find a good one. And then yeah. Like, okay, now I'm never speaking to anyone else from high school again. Or you just be like, hold on to F story and be like, oh, that on happened. <laughs> so then, but like, yeah, I, I didn't feel comfortable with who I was for a long time until doing Listen. Being non-binary throughout my entire life, all through all the times at all the gigs and all the different scenes that I was playing drums in, I was always very uncomfortable and I didn't really know why and I was like always pissed off at guys and pissed off at girls. I was like, where am I supposed to go? And then once I started running Listen, which is all about opening people's minds to gender roles that were very evident to me within the scene, then I I met so many genderqueer people and trans people through doing that work. Mainly because they were like writing to me on Facebook being like, you're doing this wrong. (laughs) Like you need to do this differently. And I'm so grateful for that. Like there was so many like very brave trans people really that like saw this huge movement happening and were like, hey, you've got to be more inclusive. You've got to involve us. And I was like, I don't know anything about this, but I really feel weird in my tummy when I think about it. (laughs) And so, yeah, I was finally introduced to the language of gender queerness through the listen project and you know we also did a bunch of cool stuff and what was so can you you talk about listen like yeah it's so interesting it's a movement it's a project how do you describe what listen how it started like what it started as and then what it kind of evolved into and and is still it's difficult because I think it's different for a lot of people and I think also it's not like it was ever kind of universally one thing Mm. sorry that sounds like activists speak real bad but like you know we were trying very much to create discourse around gender roles in music and we were just I myself personally especially was really focused on the idea that like everyone should have access to music community and I could see that that wasn't happening for a lot of people and I was criticizing a book that came out that was called Noise in My Head and I was not really happy with the type of language they were using. They were really spending a lot of time describing things as like uh, masculine equals good, tough equals good, cold equals good, you know, and, and that's all considered masculine and then anything that's like beautiful or flowery or whatever else you know that real typical a plus b equals c equals gender and I was like you know that's so boring and also it's just not what I've experienced I've been playing heavy heavy drums in thrashy bands for 10 years by that stage and I was just like that never feels like aggression to me that feels like an expression of joy and it feels like a reclamation of something and I didn't know what it was at the time but I was like you know playing with my gender and so yeah I was just like angry that these guys were getting it so wrong I made like one simple post on Facebook and then it turned into a big thread of comments and then we started a thing. And you wrote an amazing article for Lifted Brow about that book, didn't you? Yeah. I think we should link to that as well because that's a really beautiful encapsulation of that frustration Mm. that drove you in response to those ideas. And and like anyone that sort of stumbles into activism that's to do with gender, I was so unaware of what I was walking into. Like I wasn't even really aware of like – sort of trauma that I'd experienced while being inside of community and like getting drunk at gigs and going home with random people and like you know I hadn't really even become aware of the fact that lots of that was sexual trauma and that was also an emotion that was driving me behind all of it and soon enough like I was just like wow like actually what is going on there were so many people coming up to me every time I went to a gig or every time I was on Facebook there were messages being like this happened to me this person did this to me there was this real airing of all of the skeletons in the in the cupboards and so it was like 
I guess it was trying to be a thing that was creating discourse, but then what it did in the end was just catalyze. It was a catalyst for change. But that's also a lot of emotional labor for you. Yeah, Is that yeah. why you ended up stepping away? Yeah, but I also was aware that I would always have to step away. Yeah. Because it became, within the first year, it became very clear to me that I wasn't, I didn't have the breadth of experience to be able to run it long term and I have a lot of strong philosophies and feelings about the fact that like community is so many different things to so many people and so it should be run by different people and it should change leadership roles regularly and that also suits the fact that burnout is so rife in feminism as we all know so after about three years and even like maybe a bit before the three-year mark Chloe Turner sort of stepped in and so did um, Bex. And then we should list some of their their work on the website as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Elspeth Skrine has done a lot of stuff and it's been changing and we – Katie Pearson did a bunch of work with Safer Spaces Guidelines, which has ended up creating real policy change around the way that venues operate when they are managing sexual harassment within music gigs and stuff like that. So it's been it's been a real journey. I think that's amazing. I think anything that actually has a verifiable impact on policy, like yeah, that's yeah. the holy grail of activism. And so often I feel like activism can get bogged down in the anger, that the justifiable anger that people are feeling or just with frustration at the system. But it means that creating that change can be a really nebulous thing and to see policy being implemented is mm. like an incredible tangible outcome. Yeah, and I mean it was it was problematic doing that work as well because we had to engage with police and police are so messed up in so many ways as well. So it's like, you know, once you start to accuse people and, you know, I have a lot of strong feelings about things being not about the legal system that the, that we currently have and not about prisons and, you know, like... Mm. It's very hard to for me to create a tangible outcome that I want from feminism. Like generally I'm like I just want lots of ongoing discussion and I just want it to be sustainable. I want it to be sustainable enough that it does what it needs to do wherever that leads everyone. But anyway, let me try and think of one summary word, sentence for what listen is because I always struggle with it. But I feel like it's an organization built to create discourse around inclusion and exclusion in music yeah and I think you should be incredibly proud of it like it's yeah yeah just phenomenal what has happened and continues to happen yeah and but as you said burnout is real and we were talking a little bit about that off mic how are you feeling at the moment what are you working on Um, are you looking after yourself definitely not at this point (laughs) I'm trying to learn how to but it's like just like anyone else at this point in time I've got all these chronic illnesses to deal with like autoimmune problems and and that also I think comes from spending many many years just like working 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 and not really even I think what there's one thing to to be said for like working really hard throughout your life and then there's another that's like I'm working super 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 hard and I don't really even know if it's going to lead me anywhere I don't really even know if I'm going to have security I still don't know that like financial security in the future working inside of the arts doing anything that's about social change is like oh you wake up every day in a fog of uncertainty is what (laughs) what I would summarize that as so I think all of that's taken its toll and I've been like trying to devise more systems to do with managing time better and saying no to things but I'm so lucky at the moment because I'm working on all these recording projects with bands and doing more production in the studio doing composition for some films yeah can you talk about that a little bit because you've you're trying to focus on that 
a little bit more and I do want to talk to you about the Arias, but let's oh, talk yeah. just quickly about how did you decide that you wanted to go into the film score thing? Well, I've always known that I wanted to, but like what I, you know, like I remember learning the pieces that were in that movie, The Piano, yeah. that Jane Campion film. Like I learned all of those by ear and I was like, oh, I just feel like this is what I'm meant to be doing. You know? <laughs> but, you know, then you spend all this time being told like it's impossible, it's impossible, it's impossible. So I definitely put it on the back burner. But then... I was really lucky, like this guy, Liam, who runs, um, used to run the bank in Preston, now runs a small venue called One Year. He happened to have done work in the past with this guy, Thomas Wright, who used to do theatre work with Liam. And then both of them like my music and Liam's a good friend. So he was like, why don't you see if Ev wants to do this film score that you're doing? And it was for a book called Acute Misfortune by Eric Jensen about Eric's relationship with Adam Cullen. And it was like, life-changing it was such a cool film to work on like it was exactly the right kind of content for me I was like why are we talking about men on screen I don't care but like also that was I was really hopeful that we would get deeply into kind of exploring toxic masculinity and stuff like that which you know I suppose it does a little bit but it's a project that I thought I would fail at completely it was my first feature film I had done two short films before that over the years uh, mostly in art scene stuff you know so when in there thinking oh, there's no way I'm going to do this. So there's well. already like pressure because so it's a feature pressure. film and then you're putting additional pressure on yourself anyway. Yeah, everyone that does film stuff, I mean if you've come from a different creative world and then you go into film it's like so different. The dynamic, the power structures, the like hierarchy of it all. Yeah, the old guard is deep. Yeah, the old yeah. guard's deep and also there's a lot of acceptance of very toxic behaviour. And I know that just from doing one feature film. And the reason I know it is because, like, you know, my whole ethos is to just, like, talk to everybody. As soon as I started getting into film, I was like, okay, so what is the lay of the land here? Like, what do I need to know? And, you know, started having a couple of trials and tribulations with different directors. So I was like, I need to talk to everybody and find out what the scoop is. And it just seems like everyone's like, you know, if a director acts like a really mean person... You're just supposed to be fine with that. And Thomas was like actually pretty decent to work with, but I think that's because I had gotten so much like background info about how these things often work. So when I went into it, I was like very strong about my boundaries and very like, plus had this amazing guy, Rob Connolly, doing the production and he was on the producers team with some other folks as well, Liz Kearney, and like they were just so supportive and I just felt they were letting me be creative in a way that was... Um, very conducive to good product coming out. So Ev, how does it work Like when you are scoring a film? Are you doing that simultaneously with the production or do you get a finished product and then put your music onto it? Like I have no idea about yeah. how. I feel like most people would have no idea. No, that's idea. the thing is that actually no one does. <laughs> like, it's kind of like a case-by-case -case basis, I think. This is what I'm gathering is that everyone's like, you know, when you meet up with a director in the first case or the writer or whoever you're working with, it's like basically like, well, how do you work? How, how is it that you go about things? And you're sort of sussing out. And what I think that happens is that people who stay in the industry a long time, is what I'm gathering, they tend to be very good at stating their boundaries and stating like, I work this way. You give me the film then I do this for two weeks. Then if we do more, I do this. You know, like you set out what your timing is. So my preferred mode at the moment is to receive the footage when it's like nearly the end, nearly the end of the editing process. I like to see it change a little bit, but I don't really want to be involved too far before that, except for maybe like I read the script and think about it. But like I like to work to the footage. 
But then it's also fun to send things back and forth with the director if you have a good vibe with them. But often people will like, yeah, just go like, give me the footage when it's fully finished and I will give you two weeks of time or I'll give you one month of time and then we'll have two reviews. And then, and if anyone's thinking of getting into that industry, that's kind of a good way to go, to go like, these are my time limits and this is how much money I need and, you know. But there isn't a, there isn't a strict rule as to how people do it. And I think that's ridiculous. Like, why isn't there a mode of doing things? <laughs> or is it great? Because then you can just say, well, this is how I want to do it. And if you have a bit of control. Yeah, exactly. Once you know what you do want to do, though. Yeah, but that's the thing. You've how got do you to, do your you've first got to figure it out. So when you're bumbling your way through your first project, you tend to completely overwork yourself because mm. you're just constantly being like, I'll do everything. I'll do everything. I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything. And like, luckily with this project, that was fine for me to do. I was living in a stable enough environment with very low rent so I was like fine to just put a lot of time and energy into it but for anyone that doesn't have that kind of stability in their life like that's near on impossible to take that first leap into film and that's a like a huge problem with so many of the arts it frustrates me that it has to be does it doesn't it's not a conducive environment to accessibility but I suppose <laughs> there's not much work in the field blah 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 let's talk about something fun I want to talk Arias. about yeah <laughs> and how it paid off for you because you were yeah. nominated for fucking Aria yeah and there's like all this Instagram footage and I'm just like oh my god she's <laughs> hanging out with Jimmy Barnes yeah yeah like talk to us about this experience it was super weird like I got nominated for the Aria for the Acute Misfortune score but I'm like hang on a second We've been premiered, but we haven't actually had a release yet. But the soundtrack has been released. So the album itself got nominated. And I was like, cool, it's my first feature. But I was also a bit like, that seems wrong. Because nobody's going to know what the film is. Like, literally, when it came up at the Arias, everyone was like, huh? (laughs) And there was this hilarious photo that my friend took where I was holding a dog that's sort of snarling. And I looked really gothic. And it was like... I've seen that. I love that photo. (laughs) Very funny photo. But anyways, so yeah, my partner and I went up to the Arias and I got an amazing suit made. And I just lapped it up. I was like, fairly sure I'm not going to win, but like, why not? get a little sticky beak on what this vibe is and um it's a strange world (laughs) there's like three dudes that run the entire music industry I'm just gonna give you the scoop it's just all all the awards are going to those guys and then like if it if it doesn't go to someone on their label for example Courtney Barnett got a an award for like a rock album of the year or whatever no broadcast like what as it wasn't even on television was not on the tv and there was nothing wrong with the announcement i watched it she didn't say anything shocking she was very nice she was like also she's internationally huge she's a really famous goddamn artist and she's amazing right and like they're just like nope doesn't make the TV because she's not on Sony. She's not on, you know, these big labels. And I was like calling bullshit on the whole thing the whole night. But then, incidentally, I met Jimmy Barnes in the foyer. And I had met him once before at a petrol station when I was on a punk, <laughs> like, punk tour. And I was same, like... Same Aria's petrol yeah. station. I was like, this is so funny. And so I went up to him. I was like, hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Like, <laughs> I was really excited to meet him. And he was, at first, he was a bit like, oh, dear God. Like, Who is this? Because I'm... You know, I was excited. <laughs> and um, I was like, 
Ah, I my first vinyl album ever was like one of your solo albums. I'm so excited to meet you. And he was like, yeah, how you doing? And then I was like, we're in the same category. We're nominated in the same category. And he was like, oh, really? And then he like he was like, oh, cool. We're oh, you're someone same, to know. We're on the same page now. Right. And he was so friendly. And he was like giving me tips on how to get through the long ARIA Awards ceremony. What's and the tip? Does it involve? Just not drinking too much. Okay. <laughs> <I was gonna laughs> yeah. No, drinking. no, no, no. I was going to oh. say, is it like no, I mean, cocaine? Does Sorry, Jimmy. No. <laughs> the ARIAs. I, I think he's like a little more grown, like fully grown up now. He's not, maybe not doing that vibe. But like, yeah, he was just very friendly. And it was just lovely to be meeting someone whose album I bought when I was 10 on vinyl when they were selling vinyl for cheap in a box at my dad's office. And to be nominated in the same yeah, yeah, category. That's, that's fucking and awesome. Then, and then it just turned out because I had wanted to be seated near Courtney and um, the folks from Remote Control and her manager and stuff. We were in the same row as Jimmy when he got announced. And there was this hilarious moment where like they were announcing it and all these cameras were like pointing at my face and I was like, what the fuck are they doing? And then my partner was like, Ev, Ev, you're going to win. Look at all those cameras. (laughs) And I was like, oh shit, oh shit. And started writing down a speech like... And then they were like, Jimmy Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, but of course. And okay. then he gave you a smooch on the way And then he through, came right? past and he was like, look, better luck next year. And I was like, oh, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I was like, oh, they're probably not even going to televise this bit anyway because it's just a screen award. And then. Well, they didn't televise Courtney Barnett. Yeah. So what what's the, the standard? So I was like, uh, well, Jimmy Barnes is on one of the labels. Well, oh, yeah, there you go. Did you just whispered it? Like <laughs> one of the labels. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I thought it wasn't going to be on TV. Then my friend turned around and was like, you know that, like, bajillions of people just saw you kiss Jimmy Barnes? And I was like, that's right. That's right. <laughs> That's my area. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. <laughs> so, other than Jimmy Barnes on vinyl. Mm. Sisteria shout out. If we could get you to do a shout out. So we ask our guests to recommend something. Mm-hmm. What would it be? What is your shout out? I feel like I'm listening to a lot of stuff at the moment. I recently recorded Jessica Says, just like blown away. The process was so fun. She was so willing to like push her voice and try different things. And yeah, but now she's a bit like, oh, I don't want to do music anymore. So I'm kind of like everybody listen to Jessica Says and tell Jessica how amazing she is so that she keeps putting records out. <laughs> That's what I would like. That's a good shout out. Yeah. Her music's incredible. It is really and amazing. And I also recorded I Waterfall Person like... recently and that was the funnest record to make with her. So... That's another shout out. If I can make two, of course you can. And Is it selfish to just do people I've been recording with? It's just that I've like literally listened to every single second of every single song like a million times. Oh, that's totally. And fine. I still love it. Yeah, I think pieces. if it holds up after that, that's yeah. a really good sign. Yeah. That's do you often – is it like people that you record with, do you get this deeper, different appreciation for their work yeah. than with any other artists that you just listen to? Definitely. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like, also recently rec- – can I do three shout-outs? Yes. Of course you can. I'm being greedy. No. Get, get I just, I just really out. love music. Keep shouting. Yeah, talent, whatever um, you want to do. Scratch Match. I recently recorded them. And they're like a pretty up-and-coming band, kind of – Punky, post-punky, super fun. Really, really good. So that's my that's my other one. And I'm reading Yanni Val's book at the moment, Paradise Rot. Cool. We'll post links to them on our website. Ev, thank you so much for talking with no. us today. Is that finished? Fun. I feel like I rambled too much. No, I no! saved it. Oh! You rambled just that's the right amount. That was amazing. Thank you. Sisteria. 
created by women and for anyone who wants to listen. Systeria is supported by City of Melbourne in partnership with the Melbourne Library Service. Systeria is produced by Stephanie Van Schilt and me, Jessica Lucchiano. For links to everything we've discussed, check out our website, systeriapodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at SysteriaPod. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you love what we do, we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes too. Our amazing theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and is available on her latest album, Spacings. Systeria is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. We hope you tune in again soon.